This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. Hi, I'm Laura Dockrell, and once upon a time, I made the naive mistake of thinking I was a really fine, cool, normal, healthy person. And then in 2018, after the birth of my baby Jet, I was hit with a rare and debilitating mental illness, landing me waking up on my first Mother's Day, yes, I know you really couldn't make it up, in a psychiatric ward, separated from Jet and my partner Hugo. The illness came totally out of the blue. I'd never experienced poor mental health before and I'd had a very happy and healthy pregnancy. So how did this happen and why had I never heard of it? I thought it was just me, that it was my fault, that I was a bad parent and person, a failure, all of which inflamed the illness. And it wasn't until I started talking I realised it wasn't just me at all. Hearing and sharing lived experiences and stories gave me the courage to share what happened to me. And in 2020, I released my memoir, What Have I Done?, which I believe writing saved my life. We are all too aware of the physical symptoms and after effects of what bringing a child into this world can have on us. But if raising a kid is one of the most universal things in the world, why aren't we talking about the bit where you could also lose your mind? Why is there so much silence and shame? I wanted to create Zombie Mum to normalise the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood. But this conversation is not just for parents, for there are many ways to bring a small person into this universe and each story is different. So this is an invitation for all humans to discuss the human condition and its mighty resilience and power. Voices from the perspective of both parents and children for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming real talk. Zombie mum is that friend that gets it, that sits with you in the storm. I suppose I wanted to make the podcast I wished existed when I was recovering. It's just a chat between real people that have gone through something tough and not only survived, but survived. People that say, I hear you. You are not alone. It is not your fault. You've done nothing wrong. You are not broken forever and you absolutely will get better. Zombie Mum is a conversation about love. Remember to subscribe to Zombie Mum so you don't miss an episode. And if you connect with what you're about to hear, please recommend to friends and family and review on your favourite app. My first guest is the tremendous singer, songwriter, actor and wonderful human Paloma Faith. We've been friends and admirers of each other for many years now and have lots in common, but we became truly bound when my mental health began to deteriorate after the birth of my son Jet, when Paloma was generous enough to share with me her own experience and struggles with her firstborn. Her words really reassured me and comforted me during those dark times. Those people that hold a hand out towards you in a hurricane seem to stick with you for life. 
Paloma has just had her second baby and has been documenting both her pregnancy and now postpartum experience on Instagram. I caught up with her while she was still pregnant to talk about motherhood, mental illness and all things infinite. Thank you so much for taking part in this. We'll talk about the fact that you are currently pregnant, which is amazing news. Congratulations. I want to talk about that as well. But could we go back to your first pregnancy? Yes. So I basically thought that if I looked at a penis, I'd get pregnant. And I spent my whole (laughs) life thinking that that is what would happen. And actually, in my early 20s, that sort of did happen. So I was convinced that it would be really easy. So we started trying for a baby and then it wasn't that long because I knew how fertile I felt before that I thought there's something a bit wrong here. And then we found out that my partner has got some problems with his fertility. Ironically, you spend your whole life trying not to get pregnant and then when you want to, it's all a bit like, what? So we ended up having to do something called ICSI, which is the type of IVF they do when it's a sperm side issue. But everyone just calls it IVF because we love to culturally blame women for everything. Yeah. And (laughs) so it was quite traumatic. The first time was an ectopic baby. So I had to have an operation to remove it from my fallopian tube. And then the second one was my daughter. So that was amazing. But like, obviously, I had to do all the egg collection and all that stuff. And it's super hormonal and weird. I was doing it at the same time as filming the adult's voice. And I was really oversensitive, having kind of like panic attacks behind the scenes because everything was upsetting me but it was because I was like injecting myself full of hormones every day and then also there's a lot of fear involved because of the previous loss and then just the idea that maybe I will never have kids and it might not work and I was trying to juggle my career silently in the process and then I had my pregnancy which was actually okay until towards the end when I got PROMS, which is called premature rupture of membranes, where your waters don't break, but they sort of leak slowly. And I had to be on bed rest for about three weeks. And then I went into full-blown labour. That labour was 21 hours. Oh, my goodness. Which was nine hours without pain relief because I was sort of like, in my head trying to do something naturally because everything felt scientific. And then after nine hours, they just said, like, you're in so much pain, your baby's spine to spine, so she's laying on your nervous system and it's really painful for you, so we want you to take some painkillers. And I was like, okay. And I had an epidural and I went to sleep because I hadn't slept for seven days because I was having like very far between but contractions and I was trying not to go into hospital I was trying to keep my baby in for as long as possible because at that point it was five weeks premature I was sort of thinking like the longer I leave her in to grow the bigger she'll be and more robust and lots of people threw words around that I didn't like like we're going to induce you or give you steroids and it just didn't feel right to me and I felt pretty scared and I was in the hospital so yeah in labour for 21 hours and then they came up to me and I was so tired and disoriented from the lack of sleep they said 
You can either do this for another three days because you're not dilating. I was five centimetres stuck. Or you can be induced to see if it pushes it along. Or you can have a cesarean. And I was just like, I'm so tired. I just want my baby. I remember saying to the midwife, like, how long will it be before I meet my baby if I have a cesarean? And she was like, about five minutes. And I said, <laughs> I'll have that. <laughs> You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. It's like, it's one of those things, isn't it, that's like, we all know we come into this world and these massive things that happen to us then just become, oh, Paloma's got a kid, Paloma's got a daughter, but bringing that a baby into the world that is huge that is trauma yeah so then it was so the baby came and that was great but I was too weak to hold her I couldn't hold her they put her in my arms and I was like I'm gonna drop her because my whole body was shaking and I projectile vomited all over the room where they gave me the cesarean and then we had to stay me and my daughter had to stay in hospital for a week Actually, I later found out it was more for me than the baby because she came out seven pounds at five weeks early, which they were all quite surprised about, like, oh, she's fully cooked. So it was like, because I had lost a lot of blood and quite a lot of things had gone wrong and she was a conehead because she got stuck. So that was quite traumatic. And then on day three, which is apparently a thing... I didn't realise until I'd had her that day three is a thing. What's day three? So apparently all midwives know that, like, the most sort of hormonally unstable a woman is after giving birth is day three. So, like, at 4am on day three, I pushed my help buzzer and I thought that I had um, had my head sewn on somebody else's body... And I really genuinely believe this to be true. It sort of sounds funny when you say it, but it was genuinely true in my mind. And I was angry with all the staff because they'd got my body mixed up with someone else's. And I was As like, you would be, pretty living. Yeah, I was like, how am I going to go on with this wrong body? My head, I'm trapped. It's like a prison. And they were all shouting out, we've got a day three, we've got a day three. And um, some of them came in and talked to me and I basically said that I didn't think I was a fit parent and I wanted them to tell me all the details for adoption. And I was like, I'm not well. I don't look at this baby and recognise it. I don't know if it's mine. I was just like completely just 
delirious with confusion and a bit ashamed as well of those feelings because I'd spent my whole life wanting to be a mum and I didn't want to admit it so I sort of told one midwife that I liked a lot um, and I asked her if she would be discreet about it and not tell other people. She took my baby away for a night and sort of got loads of weird brown gunge out of my boobs, they call colostrum, and said, right, I'm going to look after her, you're going to sleep. And I had eight hours sleep, and then I woke up and I felt less crazy, still crazy, but like not as helpless just from eight hours sleep because that was more than I'd had in ages. And then I emailed that morning the IVF clinic to ask if they'd put the right embryo in me. And they were like, there's absolutely no way that we didn't. And all the midwives were looking at her just going, this is definitely yours. Like, <laughs> she looks like both of you. And I was just like, I just can't see it. And all of this stuff happened. Then I went home and then I had like other things like I had a a uterus infection which basically put me in labour again and I was convulsing in the bed and it was emergency so they actually put me on a drip in my own house rather than move me and then I also had mastitis twice which was also like um, my body went into shock. I was getting all these rashes like all my veins had burst all over my body. I had really bad endema they call it where you swell up with all this water my ankles were massive I was just really unwell and it took me about three months to be able to stand up vertically and about the same amount of time to not cry every day I'd say it took a total of about two years to be better enough to know that I was ill and I didn't know I was ill which is the thing about mental health is like if you're like us, like an empath and somebody who's quite in touch with themselves, you sort of assume, oh, well, I know this much about mental health and I'm that sensitive about it that I'll know if it happens to me and I didn't. And nobody else did either because it was quite a lot internal and I wouldn't say that I had such glaring symptoms as you had. I did have that weird moment in the hospital, but I think a lot of people thought I was okay. And I think maybe I thought I was okay. Well, actually, no, I didn't. I knew I wasn't okay, but I thought that that was what motherhood was and that I'd had a wrong expectation of it, that I'd be happy. But I definitely loved my baby and I obviously started to know that she was mine. And over time, we built a relationship where we got to know each other and we became friends, <laughs> me and my baby. <laughs> and it just wasn't what I thought it would be, which was like that I would look down and be like, this is it, um, my calling or whatever. I mean, I, I was obsessed by my baby, but I wasn't in love with my baby. It's a weird sort of contradiction. I was very possessive and I wanted her all to myself a lot. And I think I was unhealthily possessive. I didn't want anybody else to bond with her, I think, because I hadn't.
you didn't want anyone else to get ahead of you because you needed to catch up. Maybe. How you're speaking is just was, I just got tears in my eyes. How it just becomes like a little line about us. We bring these little people into the world and then they ruin our stuff and <laughs> and take everything we have. And it's just what we go through as well to bring them onto the earth. And to think that you're going through all of that, you can't even stand up, you know, going through all these infections and illnesses physically, but then psychologically, you're being absolutely trampled upon, desperate. And having to be brave, it's just, oh, it's just a lot. You're just triumphant. You were the only person really that told me how hard it was, actually. When I was about to have Jet, you did say that it's really hard. And I remember really valuing that because I think your natural setting as a human is like buoyant and not be that... When you told me it's hard, I was like, OK, this is real talk. I had no idea that you had gone through so much... And it was so worth it, so worth it that I'm doing it again. I know, so you're doing it all again. And this time round, I'm just so amazed and proud. You're documenting and you're writing these accounts. I think it's really cool you're kind of drawing these boundaries between you and the rest of the world being like, I think you said it's not neat, you know, I'm not a neat pregnant person. It's like you're kind of giving yourself permission going back off, this is my space and I'm going to do it. But also you're saving so many people as well, doing this in the public eye. How do you think pregnant women are treated in the kind of public eye, or women in general, pregnant person? What is the expectations and pressures put on us? There aren't that many people in the public eye who are pregnant in front of the camera. And I don't feel like, for me, it's ideal because it's not comfortable. For example, the other day I was on Jonathan Ross wearing a glittery catsuit and I was like, I can't cross my legs. I, it's so <laughs> uncomfortable. But I literally can't sit with my legs open in front of the camera that's pointed straight at me. So it was like really uncomfortable. And I would say that just in general, like, People have this sort of weird thing with pregnant women, which is like a contrast between like a molly coddling of them physically, like don't mm. lift that, don't lift mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. and all of that versus this lack of true understanding of like what you actually need. Like I'm happy to carry a bag. I understand why not many women do it in the public eye and I'm doing it not because I want to make a point, I'm doing it because it just happens to coincide with when I'd planned to put my record out. And just like a lot of working women, even though it's a very different sort of set of circumstances, you know, if you go to work and you get pregnant, you just work at the same time. And I just think I want to sort of normalise it in the sense of um, being a famous person. I think people in the public eye often hide away for it. And I did the first time. And I'm glad I did the first time because it was... I didn't know what to expect and it was scary. It feels like we have like a get on with it attitude where and especially, yeah. you know, if you're working as well, as you just said, and I actually love that. I didn't even think about it. It's so obvious. Like, why shouldn't you know if a woman's still got to, she works in a bank or she works in a school, she's a doctor, she still has to go to work. So why should you preserve yourself and hide like the most natural thing that you do? But also spinning plates, you know, it's like... You can't stop working. You're the one that puts food on the table. And yeah. also, I feel like that's so much of our identity as well, isn't it? Like, I noticed that I started to recover and feel better, not even just from my illness, but as what happened as a mum when I started working. Yeah, same. And actually now I'm raising my daughter to know that that 
that's what makes mummy happy. Like when she says, why do you have to go to work? So that we can have food on the table. I say, <laughs> I say like, so that there's food, the light switch goes on and off, clothes, toys, and the best bit is it makes me happy. That is and amazing. I think that's so important so for her to know that like, Work doesn't need to just be about finances. That's already an education from the beginning, isn't it? It's visibility. You're not showing this. is Mummies can sometimes do this and daddies can do this. It's there. Mm. And yeah. it's the life that we live. Totally. So you're pregnant again. How yes. do you feel? Well, it's interesting because I'm so happy about having another baby because my first baby is like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. But I do think I've got post-traumatic stress disorder a bit with it. Like recently I went to a scan and they said that I've got this thing called placenta previa, which is where the placenta sort of sits over the cervix. The doctor said like it means that if it doesn't go up, which more often than not apparently it does, but if it doesn't, it means that there's a big risk of excessive bleeding and she was like, oh, don't worry, we have loads of blood in the room. And it was like, a normal mind would be like, okay, great, I'm in good hands. But my thing was just like, I didn't react not like a normal person because I think I still haven't fully recovered from the trauma of the first one and what happened. And now I sort of feel more scared because I've got my daughter that's already on this earth that I care about so much and I I just went into this weird thing of like I was just worried for days that I was gonna die and I was like reacting like somebody who'd been told they were gonna die and then but then like everyone's like first of all nine out of ten placentas go back up again and also like a lot of people have it and have the operation and it's all fine like and I was just like convinced I was and I was crying all the time and I was really depressed and sort of angry at myself for wanting another child almost for putting myself in jeopardy when I feel so responsible for my child that I've got already. I'm more worried than I was the first pregnancy because of what happened with the first one. Do you kind of feel like, how did you not know? How did nobody tell you that you could feel that bad from just having a baby? There's not really our illnesses exposed. Yeah, like there's no truth about it. And also a lot of people say postpartum depression, but they don't really tell you what that means. And as somebody like yourself, who's always been quite an optimist and sort of like the go-to person, for a lot of people to make them feel buoyant and lift them up. I'd never really experienced that level of sadness before and it was quite alien to me to feel that way. So now I'm sort of like caught between an overwhelming sense of joy that I'll be able to do it again and that maybe I'll be able to rectify some of the mistakes I made before. I'm going to try not to doubt my relationship with my child or be so insecure about it so that I can then accept help from other people. And I think last time I just tried to do everything by myself and it was too much. And going on tour with a baby of seven months and I just was like a mess. I was like, 
on stage in like a poppy outfit, lactating. I was crying on stage. I remember you saying, uh, and I know this is horrible because it's your like misery moment but for me you saying that it made me feel so much less broken myself like I was just like god it isn't just me but you've got that image where you were like standing on stage singing with tears just streaming down your face that's what women are facing that's what they're doing aren't they I just did it because I'd sold all those tickets I remember on stage at the O2 and I was like saying to However many people fill the O2, it was like 18, 20,000 people. And I was like, I'm just going to text the girl that's looking after the baby just to see if... <laughs> and I stopped the gig to do a text. Is she asleep? I love that. <laughs> but it's true, you wouldn't be able to sing that. You wouldn't be able to. If I was like, I just need to know because all I'm thinking about is that and I can't remember the lyrics. Never everyone thought it was like a bit of a stand-up and laughing, but it wasn't. It was genuine. It's like the umbilical cord has never been cut, isn't it? It's like you can't fully move on to the next thing until you know they're okay yeah. and they're at peace. Tell me about recovery. If you're saying about mistakes, I don't think you made any mistakes. I think it's like a natural instinct to want to try and get better I mean I think asking for help is something you have to learn the hard way but asking for help is a brave thing to do but how did yeah. you recover I don't think that I knew I was ill so I think that it was literally the moment after two years where the hormones leave your body that was my full recovery and that was when I started to openly talk about it because I didn't know that what I was doing was postpartum depression because I just didn't ever associate myself with something like that and nobody really told me or like observed it in me between 18 months and two years they say for those hormones to leave you and they did and I remember just feeling like sort of a bit mad in the other way. Like I was like having this kind of like, I want to go out all the time <laughs> thing. Um, suddenly felt in control of myself that I hadn't had for ages. And I feel like maybe for this time, I would try and give myself a bit more patience. Like I think I just went into autopilot last time and thought, okay, so this is what I do. I need to go on tour and I need to do all this. And I think that I maybe this time wouldn't be pushing myself so much. I've got that feeling where I just feel this weird sense of responsibility that no one's ever given me, but I just feel responsible for a lot of people. I have that too, so I see it in you where you just want everyone to be happy all the time. And do you think that's to do with it? Because that's something I always wonder about. Like in my labour, I felt like I was such a passenger where I was just being like, have you eaten? Do you want a salad? Like, do, have, you, are you, have you had enough sleep? And I worry if that's like a kind of people-pleasing sort of in our nature to make sure everyone else is okay. In the, the biggest thing in your life when you're physically and psychologically under the most amount of stress, you're bringing a person into this world. And then it's not really the time to sit in the back seat, is it? No, no, I, I was like that. I remember asking the nurse, nurses all the time, like, you know, I just want to say I love the NHS. Or, <laughs> I was just like, how, how long's your shift been? I mean, it's appalling. 
And they're like, yeah. you're having contraction. It's okay. <laughs> it's like, but it's, you know, it's nothing compared to what you're doing. <laughs> Isn't it? And you sort of forget that for them, it's like another day at the office. But for you, it's like your first time. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so tell me about your record. Is this about what you went through a little bit? Infinite Things, the title track is definitely. It's sort of based on this story that I read by a guy called Jorge Luis Borges called The Aleph. And it's a 12-page little short story about this man who was asked by his neighbour to go down to his basement. And he, he said, do you want to see everything, sort of all knowledge and all... Um, sort of essentially, for want of a better word, like enlightenment or nirvana or what heaven is or what hell is or all of those words that we use in the English language to try and describe infinity. And so he says yes and what he's stunned by is like that it's equal amount pain as it is about joy. And I felt like I drew a parallel from my experience of becoming a mother to that because I felt like I was close to a version of death. But that was what I had to go to to have my baby. And I always say to people, I went to the gates of hell to bring back an angel. <laughs> and I really thought that um, it would all just be heaven and it wasn't. It's sort of transferable, I like in a sort of philosophical way, in all life experiences that take you to a place that you never perceived you'd go to or that you thought you might not get back from. So I sort of likened my daughter or looking into her eyes to infinity and in, in the world of infinity because it was like both the worst thing that had ever happened to me and the best thing that had ever happened to me. And so that's why I wanted to call the album that because all of our feelings are infinite, like they've all been experienced before and they continue to be. And something that I read the other day, which really struck a chord with me, it said something like, if you're suffering or you're in pain, you're actually living. And the only mistake that we make as a human being is expecting it to be anything else. And so I started to have a word with myself, like, okay, so I need to, like, change what my expectations are. Not that everything should be negative, but everything should be both negative and positive because that's really real life. And in a way, I think that this need that somebody like you or I have to be a bit of a people pleaser and make things good all the time and always wanting everything to be good and being responsible for everything that goodness isn't real like sometimes for example as a mother you have to watch your child fall down and be upset and then go through those feelings and not try and take those feelings away because in life they're going to experience things that don't feel good and it's not necessarily that you can protect your kids from those feelings it's about how you educate them on how they approach those things and about sort of the self-acceptance that you have to find about the way that you feel those feelings. Like last night, my 
daughter, she's only three, she'd made like this little house on four steps of the stairs with teddies and some pictures. And then her dad had tidied it up. And she just said to me, he tidied up the home I made. I was like, oh, is that bad? And she goes, it did hurt my feelings. I said, I think you should tell him. And she was like, no, I'll just hug him and tell him I love him. That's fine. And I said, it's okay. He'll still love you and you won't have an argument. And she didn't. And then I just said to him, like, she's a bit disappointed about the fact that that home (laughs) was there. And it's really, like, it's upset her feelings a bit. And he was like, I'm really sorry. And she said, it's okay, daddy. And then she cuddled him. And I was like, see? Now he knows, so he wouldn't ask you next time, maybe. But also, we don't have to make a big thing out of it, but it's important he knows. And I feel like that's such a sort of weird thing, but in life, it's okay not to be okay. I keep saying that in my pregnancy diaries. Exactly. You can't always be okay. People say very flippant things, like, and I've had it said to me, with relation to like me saying oh I really want to talk about this pregnancy thing and the experience and people are like it's not really a hook because women have been doing it for like thousands of years like humanity women have always had babies so it's not really like a hooky thing and it's like oh my god it is because I'm telling the truth about it and people haven't been so I think there's a lot of complacency in society really about what it involves and I think that previous generations women are partly to blame for that because they've basically not said this is hard and it's the biggest trap that life has basically is this yeah it's a conspiracy it's like why that and women who fake orgasms If you were to, not saying that you will, but if you were to get unwell again, will you show your daughter? I don't think you'd have much choice. There is always that thing of, like, you want your child to see you as a strong person, juxtaposed with, like, you also want them to see you emotional. So I had... Vulnerable, yeah. Yeah, I had a situation recently where I found out some really bad news and when I first found out, I was on my own with my daughter... And I was emotional and I was crying and I couldn't stop. And I was worried that it was wrong to do that in front of my daughter, but it was out of my control. And I just said, we need to go home so that daddy can look after you while mummy starts to try and feel better. And then the way that she responded was so moving and sweet that actually I thought it was a good thing that she'd seen it. She was like cuddling me and she was like I'm here mama and I love you so much you're my best friend and I just was like felt comforted by her at such a young age and I was really proud of her that like in that situation that's how she responded and so I do think that sometimes it's important for kids obviously not all day every day I think that can be damaging but I think it's important for them to know that we have feelings and bad things happen. I think that's amazing. I think you you are being a strong woman, aren't you, by being vulnerable to her. I always thought that 
you have to hold it all together to be strong. And then when you learn, you're like, oh, no, that's not strength at all. Strength is being able to fall apart, isn't it? What has she taught you, your daughter? So much. Um, In the song, I say, people say, I made you, but it's clear you made me. I just feel like the way that she sees the world is... It's so truthful and pure and like somewhere along the way in adulthood, we lose sight of those things. She's taught me little tiny things are important, like the taste of a mango, like that I shouldn't take it for granted how amazing it is. Like when you first start weaning your child and they're like, wow, this is incredible. And you're like, why did I ever become complacent about mangoes? Because that's just as valuable as something really kind of profound. Because it is profound, isn't it? And we sort of just like walk through life. And I also think that she's taught me how to slow down, which I think I needed to do. The way that just to walk to the park is a big event in a day. And in the past, I'd be like, I'm not doing that. It's a waste of time. and Don't learn anything. And now it's like... (laughs) Now it's like we're walking to the park and we're like stopping to look at the ants and we're stopping to notice the colours changing on the leaves and we're like learning how to interact with other people or she is and through her I am reflecting on my own interaction with other people like how to share and how to show people you love them and how to show people that maybe they've hurt your feelings but you still love them anyway and all of those sort of things those dynamics are going on and it's like a relearning when you're a parent you're like and you're maybe like relearning and readdressing the way you've handled things because they're a mirror aren't they yeah and you do I definitely feel very aware of all of it something that is obviously a bit unique to me but like I'm also quite aware of when I'm going to have those conversations about the fact that I'm in the public eye, like sometimes we're in the street and then somebody will come up to me and then she'll say, how do they know you? Because you don't know that person. And why did they know your name? And then I have to explain that I sing songs and sometimes they put them on the telly. And then the other day she was in the bath and she said, Mama, you're Paloma Faith at work, aren't you? I said, yes. She goes, at home, your mama. Oh. And then it was like this big realisation, age three, that there was a difference. Just one last thing I just wanted to ask you, because the one thing you've really got is that you had this thing I always think of with you and your partner that Hugo and I had, which you've brought up both times we've talked about our illnesses, which is that you were so in love and then how that love feels like it gets it's like a double blow it's like you're grieving what happens to you and then your old life your past self but also you had it so good with this person and you sort of feel like it's all lost could you talk about that and how it feels now and how you got through that yeah so like when we met I knew that Lehman was like the love of my life and that he was really right for me and then we wanted to have this child to sort of as a a token of our love um and we always tell her like that she's made up of, of our love well she always asks us about it and we say what 
how did you make me? And we say, we just love each other so much that our love made you. <laughs> and then she's just like, oh, wow. I say, you're a love child. You're a love baby. <laughs> and then, um, but yeah, but then when all the trauma happens and then I do think that motherhood's quite isolating and, and you become very lonely. I was really lonely and it didn't matter that he was there. There's a song on the album called Living With A Stranger that's a little bit about it because it felt like I didn't know him anymore. So I was worried and so was he and we thought at some point that we had lost each other and there was a moment for a while where it felt like we might not make it sort of thing. I don't know, I, I guess I was talking earlier a bit about the shame of someone seeing you like that and then having to look at them every day afterwards and knowing they saw you in a way that you don't really want anyone to have seen you like. We started talking to each other a lot and also we went to couples therapy, which was like, not for everyone, but it really is good for us. And I think it saved our relationship. A lot of people go to couples therapy because their relationship's pretty bad and they want to just tell themselves that they did all they could <laughs> and it's already sort of over but we went because we genuinely were like um I know that if I wasn't with him I'd be looking for him for the rest of my life floored me absolutely <laughs> deceased <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so we went for that reason and and we I just wanted to find him because he's sitting in front of me. But I just needed help to find him. I was a bit stuck. You feel like you don't, you that you've, they've seen too much. You can't get back from that. You know, you physically and mentally turned yourself inside out and then they love you even more. And that is the strength, isn't it? When you want to yeah. be that strong woman, they've seen you survive that. And, and in my case, with the ankles the size of an elephant. Oh my God. Paloma, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You're just so amazing. And thanks so for what you. you're doing for women to talk about this. I'm just so grateful. I just love you. I think you're brilliant. I love you back. If you have been affected by any of the themes in this programme, head to the episode description for resources and helplines. Zombie Mum was produced by B. Duncan with original music by Hugo White. It was mastered by Ben Williams. The executive producer was Hannah Walker-Brown. This is a Broccoli production. Next week, I'm talking to Catherine Cho. Here's a sneak peek from our conversation. I know you mentioned being in general psych um, as well. There's just nothing like it. And the falling in line, you're absolutely right. You don't know your destiny, how long you're going to be here for. So you think, I better get used to this place and go along with the rules. Yeah, totally. And it's not your expectation of having a baby. It's not that what no. people tell you it's going to be like. <laughs> I remember I just really wanted to leave. It's funny because you know you're being monitored and so... For me, I was like, I'm going to have to behave really calmly. There's something really strange about trying not to act unwell or mentally unwell. <laughs> There's something just really bizarre about that. Just being like, I better act sane, you know? Sure. <laughs> just, yeah, so unnatural. <laughs>